This is Dave Green at East Line Studio, where we produce the Historian's Podcast. Bob Cudmore will have the latest edition of the Historian's in just a few seconds. The Historian's Podcast depends on your donations to continue. You may donate online at gofundme.com slash thehistorians, or send a check to Bob Cudmore, 125 Horseman Drive, Scotia, New York, 12302. The Historians is also heard on RISE, WMHT's radio service for the blind and print disabled. Google WMHT.org. And on SoundCloud, search East Line Studio. And now, on with the show. This is the Historians Podcast, and I'm Bob Cudmore. We're joined by Bruce Deerstein. Good afternoon, Bruce. Good afternoon. Bruce Deerstein is uh, well-known in the field of history. He's published several books, including Railroads and Railroad Regulations in New York State, 1900 to 1913. He was program director at the New York State Archives on the staff of the Office of State History. He's taught New York State History at the University at Albany, at Russell Sage College, and State University of New York at Potsdam, and lives in our area, lives in Gilderland. He has a new book out, published by what we used to call SUNY Press, State University of New York Press, called The Spirit of New York, Defining Events in the Empire State's History. Why did you take uh, this, this approach to your latest book? Uh, I wanted to uh, try to write something that r- would reveal the essential traits and characters of New York State through its history, uh, but not try to write a comprehensive history of New York State, which would be very difficult to do. So I tried to select a number of key events, uh, turning points, uh, interesting, exciting events with uh, uh, interesting and exciting people at their core, and then to write about what led up to the event, uh, the event itself, and then the um, results or consequences uh, of the event. Mm-hmm. And hopefully, uh, in that way, reveal what was uh, distinct about New York and also why New York has been so important in American history, because it has been, arguably, uh, the uh, uh, most historically significant state state in the nation, and uh, in some ways still is. So mm-hmm. that's that's why I took that approach. The one uh, that I'd like to start with, um, you know, maybe seems like an odd choice, the throughway opening in the middle of the 1950s. And it's something I, I sort of remember from my childhood, actually. And I grew up in Amsterdam. You know, I live in the Schenectady area now. And the throughway's always been kind of part of my, my life. But you, you see it as an important historical development. Well, I, too, remember uh, the, the opening of the throughway, or the, the various openings of the various segments of the throughway uh, in the 1950s. Oddly enough, so far as I know, there is no history of the New York State throughway. Uh, it's never been analyzed uh, historically, and yet it is one of the greatest uh, 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 public uh, construction events in the 20th century in, in any state as far as length and magnitude and cost and so on. And as far as technological challenges, such as the uh, Tappan Zee Bridge, now much in the news because we're thinking of replacing it, uh, but in those days, uh, something of a technological marvel for uh, bridging the Hudson at its um, uh, at its broadest mm-hmm. uh, point. Uh, and um, the the idea behind it was to give New York the commercial edge, or one of the commercial edges that it had always had, 
throughout history in transportation, mm-hmm. going back to the uh, the Erie Canal, uh, but also to the railroads, which also aren't written up very much in history. And one of the interesting things I found is that Governor Dewey, who was the uh, main moving force behind this, often thought of as being a very conservative, uh, fiscally uh, conservative Republican, was very determined uh, to get this built, uh, and uh, first thought he could do it with state resources, then decided he had to float bonds. And he often, in his speeches, would say, look, this is the new Erie Canal. This will do for New York State. In the latter 20th century, what the Erie Canal did for New York State in the uh, early and mid-19th century. I think that might have been exaggerated a little bit, and yet this, the throughway has been immensely and continues to be immensely important here in New York. Mm-hmm. And and as you say, it uh, was a pioneer, was it not? I mean, the uh, superhighways, interstates are very common uh, these days, but the throughway it came before the big federal push to put in interstates, did it? Uh, it, it? It did. That's, that's an excellent point. There were some other uh, state, uh, important state interstates, including the uh, Pennsylvania Turnpike. Uh, but New York was, uh, I think, the longest when it was done, uh, the most costly, uh, it, and it went across the entire state and then down the Hudson so that it, it links uh, the, the entire state. And it preceded the the big federal push, which is in the uh, years from 1956 onward, uh, by uh, a number of years, and in some ways was a model for that. And in fact, uh, Bertram Tallamy, who was the first chairman of the uh, State Thruway Authority, and prior to that was uh, uh, head of the State uh, Department of Public Works, Bert Tallamy was tapped by President Eisenhower to be the first head of the federal uh, interstate highway system in the late 1950s. Mm. So once again, New York is is sort of a pioneer, and not for the first or the last time, a New Yorker who did well in New York uh, goes on to Washington to do immensely important things in Washington. Mm. And... um... Not that there weren't difficulties. I, I, I know that I do write local history up in uh, Montgomery and Fulton counties primarily. And Fultonville, this little village in, in the valley, they, they split it right in half with the throughway. <laughs> Nothing was ever the same since. And I know, for example, in my hometown of Amsterdam, it moved the sort of the center of economics uh, to the south side of the river, and now if you get up by the Amsterdam Thruway exit, that's where the big businesses are, the Beechnut plant, the Target the warehouse, the big Alpenhouse uh, RV uh, center, and so forth. That's another excellent point. Yeah, F- Fultonville is, is uh, notable for even today when you drive through it because it's on both sides of the uh, Thruway. And the Thruway is not uh, an unmixed story. Uh, it did help boost New York's economy. It brought a lot of business into New York. A lot of things grew up along the, the throughway, and many of them still there. But it also bypassed some of the big cities, uh, bypassed uh, some of the, the industrial centers, and uh, the, thereby put them at a, uh, a commercial and demographic disadvantage, uh, which they still have today. Uh, in other cases, it... Uh, particularly uh, when you get down toward uh, New York City, uh, it, it really disrupted some of the communities. And if you uh, look at that, that chapter, there's a lot of resistance to it in Rockland County and across the river in Westchester County because it took 
quite a bit of, uh, of old buildings, uh, historical buildings, people's homes, and so on, as such things do. Rather controversial. Some protests. Uh, a lot of uh, uh, a lot of writing of letters to Albany, trying to get the route shifted one one way or another. Uh, there's even one instance of a a woman in Yonkers refusing to get out of her house until the uh, bulldozers were literally at the back door, and then settling with the state and uh, and leaving. So anything like this, uh, a, a big highway, uh, urban renewal. Anything of this sort is, uh, by definition, I guess, disruptive. Mm -hmm. And as we've come to take different, a different historical view of this, rather than seeing this as, well, this was immensely uh, unadulterated progress, we now see it's more of a nuanced and, and subtle thing, mostly progress, probably in, in a historical retrospect, mostly good for the state, uh, but not in every case. Mm -hmm. And there's still some... Uh, ramifications that we're living with today, particularly as far as our cities are concerned, got this, the traffic off the streets of the cities, got the traffic out of the cities, uh, but and helped lead to the buildup of suburbs and, and some new industry and so on. But that also took some of the commerce and some of the people out of the cities. Mm -hmm. And some of our cities, particularly if you go uh, west of where I am, which is Gilderland, and west of where, where you are, basically out toward Buffalo, uh, it's it's no secret that that part of the state is still having some economic problems. But or you can trace that to the throughway or not, I don't know, but the throughway certainly is a factor. We're talking with Bruce Deerstein, his new book, The Spirit of New York. He takes a look at 16 key events. Uh, let's go way back. The first thing you uh, take a look at is the state constitution 1777 uh, that's that's pretty early for a state constitution well it's about midpoint i think uh, if you look at the 13 colonies becoming uh, states it's a more interesting story i believe than for most of the other colonies uh in part because new york was uh, rebelling uh and trying to write its constitution kind of on the fly and if you if you look at this story, it's an interesting story because it begins in New York City, on up to Westchester, and then on up to Kingston, which is where the Constitution is finally written and promulgated on April 22, 1777. But the uh, group of, of men, uh, they were all men as it, as it happened, uh, statesmen, were kind of looking over their shoulders the whole time because the British were sort of a after them and, and advancing. Mm -hmm. And when they finished the state constitution, uh, April 20th, promulgated April 22nd, the original version is still at the state archives in Albany, and you can look at it. It's actually under the lock and key, but sometimes they, they get it out. And you can see there are cross-outs and things written in the margins because they didn't have time, literally didn't have time, to make a clean copy before they promulgated it got on to the next phase of, of the work of setting up the state, which was setting up elections. And then in a short period of time, by fall, they had to get out of town because the British were coming up the, up the Hudson River. So it's, uh, it's an immensely interesting story, uh, rather dramatic at, at some point. And I, I say in the book, New York is a, uh, was a rather improbable political miracle because <laughs> the British occupied New York City. 
they were already planning to come down from the from from Canada. Eventually, stopped in the fall at Saratoga, the Battle of Saratoga. They were planning to invade from Oswego. Uh, eventually, stopped at uh, Fort Stanwix out uh, near near mm-hmm. Rome. Uh, they were sort of fending off separatists in Vermont who were fighting the British and very good at doing that, but had in mind to uh, uh, extract themselves from New York and set up their own state, which they eventually uh, did in uh, 1791. And yet the Constitution, if you read the original Constitution, some parts of it, some of the wording of it, is very much like what we have today, Hmm. such as the the wording about the uh, the executive or, or the governor. And it stood the test of time, essentially being unchanged until in the in the 1820s, and then and then it was changed. Some things were some of the mechanisms that the original Constitution included were um, found to be not very workable, and they were they were taken out and replaced. So it's a, it's an interesting story, uh, interesting people in it. Some of them turn up again. In state history, like John Jay, who was the prime mm-hmm. author, principal author, and turns up as the second governor. Then they turn up again in U.S. history. Uh, some of the founders are the, uh, or some of the writers rather, are the founders of the Federalist Party. Uh, they tend to be strong supporters of George Washington. Uh, John Jay turns up as Secretary of State and then Chief Justice uh, at the uh, national level. Uh, and a few of them uh, uh, kind of recede into obscurity, but mo- many of them come into leadership positions here in New York or at the federal level. I believe the most uh, recent historical event you write about is the uh, attack on uh, New York City in 2001, in particular focusing on the efforts of the New York Fire Department. Yes, that winds up being the concluding chapter uh, in the book. It starts out with the state constitution in 1777 and kind of winds down with the attack of September 11th. And what I wanted to do there was to tell a story that that has been partially told but not in detail and not as expansively as it ought to be about one institution that kind of typifies New York's resistance, resilience, strength, and so on. And so I chose the fire department of the city of New York, probably an obvious choice uh, because it was so centrally involved that day. But what the chapter does is talks about the politics and strategies in the department before 9-11, its work on 9-11, which is in in part a reaction to those politics and strategies and the way it was set up. And then probably most important, or at least the thing that this book adds that's distinct, what happened afterwards? Because what happened afterwards was uh, you have a new commissioner. Uh, he actually uh, re- resigned. Of course, you have a new mayor, uh, Bloomberg, coming in. And you kind of have a, have a new day because it isn't just fires anymore uh, after that. It's the potential of additional uh, unprovoked, unanticipated, uh, just uh, hard-to-predict uh, attacks. And the police department is also reorganized, but the fire department is sort of reorganized around this new mission of protecting the city from these new sorts of threats, uh, un- which can't be predicted. You don't know when they're coming. Uh, they can be contrived and, and uh, uh, deliberately made difficult. 
And I actually um, build that part of the story around a, a uh, fire officer named Joseph Pfeiffer, who's mm-hmm. I think still with the department, not not very well known, a very modest fellow. And Pfeiffer was a line officer that day and had, was out on a call uh, for a uh, gasoline or a uh, rather a gas line leak, mm-hmm. and he happened to be there when a French film crew was there desiring to film a typical day in the life of a typical line officer of the the fire department of the city of New York. So they happened to be with him when he's called away from the the gas leak to go to the Twin Towers. And for a while, he's a senior officer in command, kind of takes charge of things, not for long because other more senior officers came soon afterwards. But his own brother, who was also in the fire department, happened to come in uh, to the World Trade Center and was, was killed there that day. Very tragic. But Pfeiffer steps forward afterwards as one of the leads on reorganizing the department, uh, uh, helping it to develop new policies to be much more flexible, uh, much better intelligence, much more information, better command and control, uh, able to respond to a number of things at once, better coordination with the police department, and, and so on. And that's sort of where the book winds up. Resilience, imagination, uh, response. A New Yorker that was just a, uh, just an average uh, officer in the, in the department on uh, September 10th, and afterward, and on September 11th was a hero, and afterwards was a leader uh, in shaping the department into the future. If I could uh, focus, uh, as you just did on the firefighter, with uh, on one individual, you do a, a section on Glenn Curtis, the uh, aviator. Yes, uh, and that was one of the most interesting chapters for, for me to research because I didn't know much about him. Uh, Glenn Curtis from Hammondsport, New York, uh, kind of a tinkerer and an inventor, uh, began building bicycles as a young man. Uh, they weren't fast enough, and so he began buying engines to put on them, and they weren't good enough, so he started building his own engines, then moved up to motorcycles, uh, then up to better engines for dirigibles, which were essentially um, uh, big uh, big gas, uh, gas bags with gondolas on them that uh, moved through the air kind of in an awkward uh, fashion. And then on to biplanes, that is two-wing planes, and made the the transition in the meantime from engineer and builder to uh, lead to uh, experimental pilot and then lead pilot, and actually made the first publicly announced, publicly witnessed uh, heavier than air flight in an airplane on July 4th. Uh, 1908 in Hammondsport. Now people think, well, that that can't be right. That the the Wright brothers mm-hmm. were first. Well, the Wright brothers had flown flown five years earlier, uh, but not in an, an event mm-hmm. that was uh, pre-announced, open mm-hmm. to the public, newspapers there, and so on. Curtis operated much more uh, out in the open uh, mm-hmm. than the Wright brothers, with whom he became uh, a great a great rival, and they actually fought each other in court over uh, patents and, and so on. But the, uh, the story there, the central story, is Curtis flying from Albany, just at, actually just outside of Albany, uh, to New York City, 
May 29, 1910, the first person to fly in a heavier-than-air machine from Albany to, to New York City. And uh, he, he did this uh, in pursuit of a prize by uh, Joseph Pulitzer, who had offered mm. a $10,000 award to anyone who could do this. There were some conditions. You could land a couple of times, which uh, which Curtis did. And it, it's quite an adventure because he... Uh, actually has to land to get gas at one point near Poughkeepsie, and then he runs out of oil just when he gets inside the New York City limits and actually lands on the um, estate, on the yard of an estate in New York City, and gets some oil. (laughs) Back in the air, uh, flies twice around the Statue of Liberty, and... uh, uh, lands at Governor's Island by by uh, uh, he already had permission to do that from the army, and C- Curtis goes on to do a, a lot of interesting things. He is the person who essentially works with the Navy to convince them that the airplane is going to be the the attack weapon of the future, and uh, gets them to buy some planes from him. He trains the first naval pilots. Mm. Uh, he's he and his and his uh, colleagues first to fly from shore to a warship and land, take off from the warship and go back, first to fly out on pontoons, be hoisted onto a warship, let back down into the water and fly back, and that's in 1910 and, and 1911. Um, an immensely interesting guy, very modest, uh, tended to share his uh, uh, innovations uh, rather than trying to lock them up by patents, which is what the Wrights tended to do. And yet he was sued a number of times by the Wrights uh, in court. Mm-hmm. This was eventually a compromise during World War One, when the government essentially said to these companies, you have to come together for the good of the cause because we have to fight a common enemy uh, now. Mm. And uh, uh, he went on, finally retired to Florida, uh, where he got into real estate, did a number of other things. Uh, including inventing what we would now call the travel trailer, uh, came back to uh, Hammondsport for for a while, and um, uh, didn't feel good one day. Went up to the hospital in Buffalo, and turned out he had appendicitis, and died very right suddenly. My goodness! <laughs> so after all of his uh, uh, harrowing experiences in the air, including a few uh, uh, near-death experiences uh, and bad bumps and so on, he died of appendicitis, which is too bad. But <laughs> One of the most interesting people in the book, and very, very um, modest and self-effacing. Didn't mm-hmm. like crowds, didn't like speeches, uh, didn't like interviews, didn't like the right things. Just wanted to get back to work and um, uh, keep inventing uh, air, airborne technology, which is what he did. Bruce Deerstein is with us. His uh, newest book, The Spirit of New York, Defining Events in the Empire State's History. It's published by SUNY Press. We have a few minutes left. I wanted to uh, ask you about your role as, uh, I would submit, as a public historian. I mean, you worked uh, for many years uh, for the state of New York. You frequently write uh, opinion pieces for the Times Union newspaper in Albany about uh, history and historical topics. Uh, how do you think, what, what's the state of history education in uh, New York today? Well, my, my connection with New York State history goes back quite, quite a ways. I actually grew up on a farm in Bern, one of the Van Rensselaer farms, and one of the stories in here is the anti-rent wars, 
And one of the photos here is the Lutheran Church in Bern where the uh, the farmers met in one of their initial protests and where they issued sort of a declaration of independence which kicked all of this off. off. This happens to be my, my church, my home church. And we learned more about it in, in seventh grade history. And then I was fortunate enough to go to school here in New York, Hartwick College, and then Syracuse University and studied more history, taught at a number of institutions, worked for the Office of State History, which is now no longer in existence, and then the New York State Archives, uh, all of these wonderful, wonderful uh, uh, places to work. And so I've been very fortunate in my life and in my career, A, to be a New Yorker, and B, to have all of these uh, opportunities to be exposed to sources and New York State history itself. In, in my opinion, New Yorkers themselves don't know enough about uh, their own history. That's one of the reasons that this book was written. And New York, for all of its historical achievements, tends to be modest and reticent about its own history. And if you look at national texts and national accounts of historical um, events, U.S. history, uh, New York doesn't get its due very often. A good example is the Civil War, where New York contributed more men, uh, more materiel, uh, sustain more mm-hmm. casualties and provide more more finance uh, than any other state. In some areas, New York alone outproduced the entire uh, Confederacy, and yet uh, we we don't have an official uh, Civil War uh, office to celebrate the 150th anniversary of the Civil War now just uh, just passing. But if you compare us to say uh, Massachusetts or Pennsylvania or Ohio, mm-hmm. they do. Uh, they very much emphasize their own history, their own historical contributions, and, and so on. Just to take another example real quick, and I know we're running out of time, there's a, um, a series running on AMC, it's in second year, called Turn, which is essentially the story of Washington spies, an irregular group of, mm-hmm. of patriots, mostly on Long Island and in, and in New York City. That is filmed entirely... In Virginia, <laughs> and, <laughs> yes. and if so, you see these beautiful historical buildings. They're in Virginia. If you look at the ads, they're from the Virginia uh, Department of uh, uh, Tourism. So, I, I love I love New York. I guess that's pretty obvious. Uh, I think we could we could uh, probably strengthen our uh, state history programs, be more assertive, tell our story more imaginatively. Maybe, maybe even a bit more aggressively, and that's one of the reasons behind this book. It's one of the reasons that I I do write as as a freelancer uh, from time to time for the Albany Times Union in their um, Sunday perspective section. Mm-hmm. They're trying to make the case that there are historical precedents and historical parallels for much of what's happening in New York State today. I've written recently a couple of times, for instance, about. Uh, corruption and problems in the legislature. Mm-hmm. Well, no, nothing really new there. On the yeah. other hand, the New York State Legislature over the years has been one of the best and most progressive in the nation, passing a, a legislation that's kind of kept New York at the forefront of the states. So uh, that's uh, that's kind of a long answer to a short question. Uh, you're, you're doing a terrific job. A lot of other people are. I wish there were even more people. Uh, working uh, in the area of public history, 
New York State public history broadly defined, that is, trying to get the, the word out in a way that people will understand it. Again, that's what this book tries to do. This is interesting history, hopefully, because the history itself was interesting and the people were interesting. And so historians have, a, in that sense, an easy job in New York in rendering uh, interesting events done by interesting people into interesting narrative. Mm. Well, Bruce Deerstein, I thank you for joining us. We don't have time to even talk about it, but in uh, the new book, The Spirit of New York, he has uh, stories about the Love Canal out in western New York and also something that I'm interested in because I remember going to it, the 1964-65 World's Fair in New York City. So a lot of uh, good reading uh, between uh, the front and back covers of The Spirit of New York, Defining Events in the Empire State's History. It's published by State University of New York. Press, the author, Bruce Deerstein. Thank you very much for joining us, Bruce. Thank you. I appreciate it. Have a good day. Thank you're, you. You're listening to the Historian's Podcast. I'm Bob Cudmore.